0: What you are about to hear may include disturbing descriptions of sexual or physical abuse, or may contain coarse language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: As a child, Genevieve Amaral moved to the Junction neighborhood with her family in 1990, where she began attending a local school.
2: And it was pretty rough um, in that area. It wasn't somewhere I would walk at night. So I always felt a little bit like the junction I associated with being on sort of the wrong side of the tracks. When I moved, I was seven or eight. And I made a friend immediately, my very first friend. Um, And she befriended me, this was third grade, she befriended me pretty actively and was really talkative.
1: Soon, this friend began to confide in Genevieve about some family secrets.
2: And right away she started, started telling me um, about this group that she belonged to, that her family was part of this organization and that they, so, and that it was yeah oriented toward or the or center of it was this, this health food store. And um, pretty as soon as I was old enough to understand, I just associated with new age stuff. It was like vegetarianism and health and stuff like that. But mostly she emphasized that it was a secret. That I, that I couldn't tell anybody. It was a big secret. And the main thing I also remember is that they would do, um, so there were activities that they would do together that involved crystals and purification, rituals, and that they tithed really heavily, was the other thing that I remember, that there was, like, um, money that her, that her family would give this group.
1: Genevieve began to realize that among the children she knew at school, it wasn't just this one friend whose family was involved with this secretive group.
2: And so this this little girl tells me the story. Uh, and tells me that it's a big big secret. I can't tell anybody. And then pretty quickly after that, a couple of other of the children. And this is like a new school I had just moved to. These other children would come up to me and be like, "I'm part of this group too." And you're never you you weren't supposed to know this. So It was a little unnerving, to be honest, right? A little creepy. Um, and you know, I ended up offending a bunch of these other student kids. They were confused about it, too, I think. They were sort of like, my parents say you're not supposed to know. But then soon, like, I ended up, yeah, friends with a lot of other little children because I wasn't initiated into this sort of thing, you know. And so so, um, they could be kind of frank with me. So that was um, how I discovered them. But one of the things that I ended up discovering was that suddenly it seemed like all these people in the neighborhood that I knew were part of this group. Uh, And there were all these other children and adults sort of in the in the, um, ecosystem of the neighborhood that was, was in this group. The only thing that was a little bit um, unnerving to me was this perception that suddenly like, yeah, there were some adults in my life, um, who were associated with this group. Um, and so it was unnerving to me as a child to have been initiated into this secret knowledge, because I felt like it might, that the adults were suspicious of me and I have no reason to believe that. But I was anxious that uh, I had done something wrong and that the adults (laughs) of this organization were going to disapprove of me.
1: The group these families were part of? The Students of Light. Over time, these children confided in Genevieve about some aspects of how group members raised their children. Her closest friend from the group was often sick as a child. And she told Genevieve that the group turned to natural remedies as well as spiritual healing methods like aura balancing.
2: The pendulum, the crystal, I'm glad. I didn't want to say, I didn't want to describe that because it's such a vague memory that I've often, I've long wondered whether I invented it. Um, But I 100% remember uh, my friends telling me about undergoing these procedures because yeah like I said like there was there was a lot of concern around yeah these illnesses like my friend who got horrible migraines and so a, you know a lot of energy was expended like she got horrible migraines like she would throw up um, when she got these horrible migraines all through childhood um and so a lot of energy was expended around um figuring out how to help her with their procedures and their and their treatments and food and crystals and
1: Genevieve also remembers hearing that the group's healthcare regimen included certain communal child-rearing practices.
2: And one of the, so the only other practice that I can, I remember that I can tell you about that they did a little bit was they would move some of the children around the households for reasons that I can't really recall. Um, Like if a child was getting headaches or was sick, there was some sense that maybe it was because of, I remember one of my friends was staying with another family for a couple of months and she had these bad headaches. And they were speculating, I guess the reason they moved her because it was because they thought, the group thought the headaches were connected to bad vibes at her family's house or something. I don't know. But the group decided that maybe she would get better if she wasn't living at her parents' house. And there was some of this kind of like um, communal child raising going on. And there was like adoption stuff that happened, I think. Like I remember one person, she, was the adopted daughter of a member of this group. And my memory of it was that this was a, this had this was like sort of a group decision that her parents were like unfit to raise her and so this other adult in the group was gonna raise her. we're gonna raise her instead. And they just did. like they were her adopted. for all I for all I know, the whole time I knew her, she was the daughter of these adopted this adopted family.
1: In this episode, we try to uncover what it was like to grow up as a member of the Students of Light, and why being raised in the group has had a lasting impact on former child members. You're listening to Chasing Enlightenment, Episode 5, The Second Generation. searches for information about the students of Light turn up very few relevant results. But among these are various threads on the social media site Reddit. Anonymous posters claiming to be former second-generation students of Light have used Reddit to find one another and to seek more information about the group they grew up in. These anonymous posts contain few specific details, but they do reveal many former members' contempt for the group and its leader, John Hainus. I was made to join as a child when they settled with John in the Junction. We were told to keep it secret, and it was all about control. For example, you had to write a letter asking if it was a good idea to go on holiday. I wasn't aware of any dodgy stuff, like the stereotypical cult stories, but the early days were awful, as the members were a mix of neurotic ex acid heads, draft dodgers, and very weird people. Being gay was a big no, and it was implied you should marry within the group. We were shipped off to veggie meditation camp in upstate New York every summer with people who had no training with kids. I was very scared. Everyone spied on the teens and reported back to parents for discipline.
0: Born into it, grew up in it. Fucked a lot of people up. Knew it was fucked when I was only six or seven, but I had to play the game. Gotta play hide and seek when you're a kid surrounded by unbalanced people, unwaveringly convinced of their opinions. It's changed names since, but I don't want to say it's people I still care about are still there, and how people want to live is their business. I left in my early 20s, almost as soon as I was able to. It was free of a lot of the dodgy stuff you'd expect in a stereotypical cult scenario, but it was a mindfuck nonetheless, in the sense that a lot of disturbed people were given carte blanche to act as they saw fit, and basically mindfuck themselves and the people around them, and as a kid, there wasn't much you could do about it, even though you could see it was wrong.
1: So, what was day-to-day life really like for child members of the group? By all accounts, children were deeply immersed in group teachings and activities. Joseph C., who you last heard from in Episode 3, told us about meeting a family in the group when he was first getting involved. He said the children in this family spoke about John Haynes with the same kind of reverence as the adults.
3: When I met this family and they spoke to me about John, It wasn't just the parents who spoke to me about John. The kids spoke to me about John. And they all had similar stories about John. So it would have to suggest to me they all had some kind of experience with John, each and every one of them.
1: Joseph says these children were raised as fully initiated group members. They were involved in group practices like aura balancing and meditation, and in group lifestyle choices like vegetarianism.
3: They were raised by the influences that was filtered down from the top, which would have been their parents. They were meditators, uh, they're vegetarians, um, and so the kids are surrounded by these type of influences. You eat this food, but not that type of food, and because for this reason, as opposed to that reason. Okay, so there was structure in their life, if you want to look at it like that.
1: We've also heard from the former group member we've been calling Andrew that children's day-to-day life in the group was fairly tightly regulated. All the group kids had to go to the same school. They were discouraged from associating with non-group kids. You were only supposed to play with the group kids. Andrew also says that the group's leadership rewarded children when they reported on their peers who failed to conform to group teachings and expectations. He says it wasn't so much that children were explicitly or actively encouraged to snitch on one another. It was more that they'd be praised when they did so, which provided some subtle encouragement to keep it up. It was like you get a pat on the head for reporting subversive behavior up the chain, you know? Oh, so-and-so was at school and they were associating with this bad kid from outside the group. And the next thing you know, there's some sort of intervention done. It was this sort of nonsense all the time. Andrew says that this kind of practice led to paranoia among children in the group. So it was like you had your friends, but you always knew that these people would ratchet you up the chain in a second. Of course, to really find out what life was like for children in the group, we have to hear directly from those who lived it. Only one former child member agreed to appear on the podcast, with many others hesitant because they still have family or friends in the group. Because she was a child when the events she describes took place, we agreed not to use her real name. We'll refer to her as Emma. Before Emma's family joined the group, she was used to spending very little time with people outside her immediate family. It was a bit of a shock at first to join a close-knit community of hundreds of group members, all living in the same Toronto neighbourhood.
4: Um, it was a little mind blowing. Uh, like I said before, I I was part of a smaller group, um, just my family. So when we went to, let's say functions, um, and there's 150, 200 people there. Um, I was completely overwhelmed. Uh, there are many times I would sit in another room just away from everybody else because I couldn't handle all the people. I just didn't do well with multitude of people.
1: At first, Emma got the sense that many children in the group, some of whom had been born into it or who had already been there for years, were more spiritually advanced and knowledgeable than she was.
4: I didn't really, I I wasn't as holy as everybody else. That's how I felt. I'm not as holy (laughs) because I came to the party late.
1: (laughs) Still, Emma quickly found a lot of comfort in the close-knit community the group provided. Before this, her family had been very independent, and Emma herself had been tasked from quite a young age with much of the responsibility of raising her baby brother.
4: It was a shock for sure, but there was also the comfort too, because I did have all of a sudden all of these aunts and uncles that were looking out for me, Um like i said my baby brother was my responsibility um there were other adults that were telling my parents this isn't a great idea you need to make sure that you know this isn't a nine-year-old's responsibility to take care of take care of an infant a one-year-old that you need to you know expand your now you have people to that you can count on basically so there was the positive of it but it was also completely overwhelming for for me when i came
1: In the summers, children were sent to camps run by adult group members. For some years, the group owned a property in upstate New York where these camps were held. There, children spent hours each day meditating and listening to lectures about group teachings.
4: It was boring. It was a lot, a lot, a lot of hours of doing nothing. Like, we would sit there and listen to lectures.
1: At the same time, there were also more traditional summer camp activities, and Emma looks back on this aspect with fondness.
4: But there were other times where it was fun, where we'd go out and learn how to do archery, or we'd learn how to swim, or we would go and uh, plant identification or um, herbal identification. We would learn to sing. We would learn like all different types of stuff. I mean, it's where all of, most of us learned how to scrub a pot. Like, you know, we all had to take turns washing dishes and Clearing tables and, like, making food, we all, we all pitched in to help, for sure. There was a positive aspect to it. Um, but an hour or two hours of meditation in the morning and an hour in the afternoon um, is a lot for kids.
1: As a child, Emma developed a rather close relationship with John Haynes, even though most people in the group weren't allowed much direct access to him. Emma's one of the few former members we spoke with who had very positive things to say about John.
4: I probably had a bit of a different experience than a lot of the other kids. Um, I was a little bit closer to John. Um, I was born with a kidney disease and I only had one functioning kidney. Uh, I had kidney stones that I was passing all the time and I was in a lot of pain. John, very early on, Um, used to have private, uh, pendling sessions with me. Basically, uh, he would help release, his belief was that he was help releasing a lot of the crystals within my kidney so that I wouldn't have a kidney stone and have a kidney attack. I just ended up having that access to him because I was a sick person. Um, so there are many times where I had conversations, just normal kid conversations about, um, dealing with kids at school or with a teacher or I I sucked at school so it was a lot of discussion about uh, why I wasn't doing well in school and what was wrong and um it was just another adult to talk to for me when I was younger I found him very caring I cannot tell you uh one time where there was a negative aspect to John for me um Any time that he made a mistake, he apologized to me. He would apologize and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I messed up.
1: At the top of this episode, you heard Genevieve recall her young school friends telling her about the group's communal child-rearing practices, where children would live for periods of time with other families. They told her this was for the good of their spiritual health, a cure for physical ailments that were caused by some kind of spiritual imbalance. But former group members have also told us that this practice was used when children were acting out, being disobedient or rebellious. Cynthia Watson, who you've heard from in previous episodes, told us these children were sometimes sent to homes of adults who weren't really fit to care for them.
2: There was this one family, they had a child, and uh, he was a bit of a, uh, a challenge. And they gave him away, they gave him to a guy from Vermont who had, uh, as far as I could see, anger problems, and they just sort of, you know, sent him to live with someone else. And there was other examples, I just can't remember.
1: Andrew told us that this practice was even used by group leadership as a way to spite parents. And I think it could be applied equally to the parents and the children. Sometimes it was a thing with the parents, oh, the parents aren't towing the line, we'll take your kid away. Or, oh, the kid's acting up, so yeah, 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 we'll teach this family a lesson we also heard a first-hand story about this sort of practice from Emma. Her story is about her personal experience and doesn't necessarily reflect the experiences of other children in the group, but it reveals that group leadership did take it upon themselves to remove children from certain homes and families. Emma told us that her parents, especially her mother, had been physically abusive towards her and her younger brother. Because the Students of Light were such a closely-knit community, other adults began to notice.
4: Uh, My parents were physically, my parents, and particularly my mother, like I said, had an anger issue, was physically abusive to me. So I had had three or four meetings, meetings uh, with the head of the group, along with my parents. Because there were times where the discipline was uh, a bit more strict than I guess the group had felt comfortable with. They had heard what was going on. Um, And we were living in close close proximity to other people who were part of the group. Uh, So they saw the bruises or they saw um, my response to my parents. And they would bring it up to the head of the group.
1: When she was around 11, Emma began meeting with John Haines to discuss the fact that she herself was beginning to develop anger issues in response to the way her parents were treating her and her brother. The meetings were supposed to help regulate her emotions and her violent outbursts.
4: So I had three or four meetings with the head of the group where we were trying to basically think of his counseling sessions.
1: Soon, though, an incident occurred that triggered a more drastic intervention from group leadership.
4: My mom found a knife in my bed um, that I had put in there in case she ever came after me in anger because it had happened a couple of times where I was woken up with her punching me. Um, this was an immediate call to the group to get me out of there. Um, I was within, I'd say, Like, I went to school in the morning, and I came home from school, and I was told I'm going to go live with two other people who didn't have any kids.
1: Looking back, Emma sees this situation as quite a complex one. She struggles with exactly how to view it. She recognizes that she was living in a bad situation and needed help, and she thinks there was some genuine effort on the part of group leadership to help fix a toxic situation.
4: Being an adult, I can look back at it and say, OK, yeah, that kid need to be out of that situation, like, pronto. Um, and anything close to, I mean, at least I was put with people I knew, right?
1: But Emma also feels the situation could have been handled much better. For one thing, the decision to remove her from her home was painted as one to help fix her problems within herself, given that she had started becoming angry and retaliating when her mother became violent. This made her feel like the move was her fault, even though it was her parents who had been abusive.
4: I don't believe I was told that it was my fault, but I definitely felt like it was my fault. Because I responded in the way that I responded, because I didn't respond properly, um, that I responded with violence, that I was going to hurt my mom if she was going to hurt me, Um, I was pulled out of that situation and put in with two other people. Um, And it was in the stipulation that I had to work on myself. I had to make myself better, and that I couldn't do that with my mom and my dad there, that I had to do it by myself at 11. And um, instead of learning how to deal with those emotions, um, I think that could have been dealt with in a lot better way than removing a child from a home where they really weren't the problem. Like, yes, there was a problem there, but they really weren't the problem.
1: The group also enforced a very strict separation between Emma and her family, including the baby brother who she'd previously cared for so closely.
4: And I wasn't allowed to have contact with my family. I wasn't allowed to call them. I wasn't allowed to talk to them. And my brother, who I had been basically a parental unit for, I wasn't allowed to call him. I wasn't allowed to talk to him. I wasn't allowed to see him. Um, So separating me from that um, definitely hindered Me? Did not help.
1: Ultimately, Emma thinks things could have been handled better.
4: Looking forward after that time, I would say it wasn't a positive. Um, It was the catalyst of me feeling abandoned. Uh, I felt like my parents just gave up on me. Um, They didn't fight for me. They um, They didn't want me, that I wasn't very good, I wasn't a good kid, so I had to be removed from them.
1: Emma's new living situation proved to be temporary, and she moved back in with her parents after a couple of months.
4: I, uh, I shortly moved back in shortly after that with a couple of stipulations from the group that if I, was, if I was starting to feel like feel overwhelmed, I was to tell them and a bunch of other things like that.
1: After Emma was returned to her home, her family stayed with the Students of Light for several decades. Eventually, though, her parents passed away, after which she slowly drifted away from the group as an adult. Through Emma's experiences, we can see that John and the group's leadership had a lot of power over even the most intimate aspects of group members' lives, down to decisions about how to raise children and deal with abusive family situations. How John decided to use that power clearly had lasting effects on his younger generation of followers. In the rest of this episode, we'll focus in depth on one particular story involving a second generation student of light.
5: The Inner Light Meditation is to assist you in making the essential shift from your mind-based personal consciousness to your transformational consciousness or your seventh sense. This shift in consciousness is so important to you being able to leave the room for your soul
1: That's the voice of Don Colmar, creator of the complete self-attunement guided meditation method. You heard about Don briefly in our previous episode. He was a founding member of the Students of Light, who was eventually forced out of the group in the late 70s, in part to ensure John could consolidate his power.
5: Your body is a focal point in time and space. After
1: leaving, Don moved from Toronto to the U.S. and continued to practice spiritual healing. He eventually moved to Amsterdam and founded his complete self-attunement meditation practice. Now, with a devoted bunch of followers, he trains other practitioners and teachers and runs retreats and conferences around the world.
5: The first is the expression, the light, which is a term that represents energy, life force, or fluid consciousness. The light is something to be felt or experienced as a feeling sensation rather than just something to see or visualize.
1: So what exactly does Don's story have to do with the second generation of the students of light? In May of 2019, Don was arrested after traveling to California to put on a meditation workshop. His arrest followed a request by Canadian authorities for his extradition based on allegations against him by a former second generation student of light. She alleged that Don had raped and sexually assaulted her when she was an underage girl. We should note at the outset that at the time of this recording, Don has neither been tried nor convicted of these alleged crimes. Everything you're about to hear about the accusations against him is based on publicly available court documents. These documents keep Don's accuser anonymous, since she was a minor at the time of the alleged offenses, and will do the same. Since court proceedings sometimes refer to her by the pseudonym Bonnie Baker, We'll call her Bonnie. Bonnie's parents brought their family into the Students of Light around 1974 when Bonnie was 11 or 12 years old and Don was 23. Don allegedly told Bonnie's parents that she was spiritually gifted and had been chosen by God to do special work, work that she could only accomplish by becoming close with Don. He allegedly began spending time with her alone, promising to give her one-on-one instruction and guide her to reach her full spiritual potential he would take her on trips to the U.S. to perform aura balances, eventually training her in this technique so she could assist him. Bonnie alleges that Don soon told her it was divinely ordained that they be married when she turned 16, and that he initially said they wouldn't be physically intimate until that time. That soon changed. Bonnie claims that when she was 13, Don said he couldn't wait any longer, and began periodically sexually touching and then eventually raping her. Bonnie also alleges that Don exercised intense control over her life and verbally abused her. That he permitted her to sleep for at most three hours a night, and controlled when she ate, when she used the bathroom, when she brushed her teeth, and what she wore. And Bonnie says episodes of sexual abuse were typically preceded by hours of verbal humiliation, during which Don called her stupid, a piece of shit, worthless, and fat and ugly, while extolling his own spiritual powers, and what a great honor it was for her to be with him. Through all this, Don allegedly instructed Bonnie not to tell anyone about their physical relationship because no one would be able to understand the special spiritual nature of their connection. She didn't initially disclose Don's abuse to her parents, though she did once share a few details with John Henes. But Bonnie says that John claimed Don's anger was her own fault, resulting from a failure to love and remain loyal to him. Even worse, she says John tried to convince Bonnie to break things off with Don and begin a sexual relationship with him instead, claiming that he was the truly powerful leader with a direct connection to God. When Bonnie was 16, arrangements had begun for her wedding to Don, with the approval of her parents. But sometime before the wedding, Bonnie was hospitalized after experiencing a physical collapse and severe stomach pains. She says her mother then realized the deteriorated emotional and mental state she was in, brought on by her experiences with Dawn. Bonnie's parents canceled the wedding and cut off all contact with Dawn, around the same time that Dawn also permanently left the Students of Light. Bonnie says she eventually revealed more specifics of her abuse to her parents, John Haines, and other higher-up group members. But she claims group leadership initially told her family not to bring charges against Don because their case was weak and the abuse Bonnie experienced was likely her own fault. Several years later, though, John told Bonnie's family that Don was back in Toronto and presented some kind of threat to the group. He pressed Bonnie's father to call Don and threatened to bring Bonnie's allegations of abuse to the police if Don ever tried to bother John and his group. The group never heard from Don again. Bonnie's family eventually left the Students of Light in the 90s, and Bonnie finally brought her allegations of abuse to police in 1997. For some reason, the police only began actively pursuing Bonnie's claims around 2017. When they found Don's online presence and realized that he'd be traveling to California for a workshop in 2019, they set in motion the process that resulted in his arrest there. In a California court, Don and his defense lawyer argued against his extradition to Canada to face charges based on Bonnie's allegations. Some of their arguments concerned the legality of the extradition. For example, they claimed that the allegations and evidence against Don failed to meet standards set out in the Canada-U.S. extradition treaty and that the extradition would violate Don's legal rights because of the many decades delay between the alleged crimes and his prosecution. They also argued that Bonnie's testimony really describes a consensual sexual relationship with Don, since she never says he physically forced or threatened her, merely that he would verbally abuse her prior to their sexual encounters. They argued that, quote, Consenting to sex because you've been told you're ugly or stupid does not convert that sexual act to forcible rape, unquote. Further arguments tried to undermine Bonnie's credibility. For example, they pointed out inconsistencies in Bonnie's testimony, such as in dates when she says certain events took place, as well as the fact that she took so long to report her abuse to police. Don's defense also put forward an alternative theory of the case, arguing that Bonnie's apparent memories of abuse by Don are entirely false. They claim Bonnie's story was planted in her head by John Haines years after the fact, when John wanted to weaponize Bonnie's allegations as a way of threatening Don and keeping him away from the group. On this theory, John invented the allegations of abuse and then convinced Bonnie and her family that it had occurred by causing Bonnie to experience false memories of it. A California judge concluded that the case against Don met appropriate standards laid out in the Canada-U.S. extradition treaty so in february 2020 she concluded that don should be sent to canada and tried for the crimes that bonnie alleges occurred however at the time of recording this episode the last official update we've located is that don remains on bail in california while he challenges the judge's extradition order his appeal seems to be marred by some delays in may of 2021 don's wife writing from their home in amsterdam submitted a letter to the judge overseeing don's case imploring her to move it along more quickly. Here are some excerpts from that letter.
0: The pain of not knowing when this nightmare will end prompted me to write to you and ask you to look at Dawn's case. My husband is being falsely accused. In 1980, the complainant and her family started to live with the group my husband was part of since 1975. My husband left the group in October 1979, When it became apparent, the group was becoming a cult. The group came under the influence of a cult leader, John Haynes, who claimed himself to be Jesus Christ. In 1985, my husband, on visiting Toronto and seeing John Haynes on the street, confronted him with his wrongdoing and the harm he was causing his students. After that encounter, John Haynes saw Don as a threat I was afraid don would expose his cult to the media this was the start of john heinous influencing the complainant and her family in creating false memories of encounters between my husband and the complainant the charges against my husband became known to the canadian police in march 1997. the canadian police never pursued the charges until the end of 2018. my husband was never informed about these charges even though the Canadian police knew his address in Amsterdam. The COVID-19 pandemic travel restrictions have prevented me from being able to visit Don with regularity. We greatly miss each other. The strain from waiting for resolution of false and decades-old accusations is becoming increasingly unbearable for me and led me to reach out to you. I remain hopeful that the U.S. court will see the evidence and allow my husband to return home.
1: Now, regardless of whose side of the story is ultimately true in this case, it's clear why Bonnie's time growing up in the Students of Light left long-lasting scars. If her allegations against Dawn are true, it means she was raised in the group in a sexually abusive situation. But, even if we assume that the alternative story from Dawn's defense is true, that Bonnie's memories are false and somehow planted in her head by John Haynes, It would still be true that Bonnie's childhood was marred by a manipulative spiritual leader. So, if the stories on either side of this case are true, it should be clear why Bonnie would have lasting traumas related to her upbringing in the group.
0: Chasing Enlightenment was written and narrated by Daniel Monroe. Audio production and editing by Carolyn Smiley. Additional research and voiceovers. Robert Monroe Artwork and Web Design by Megan Hilario Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen You can find more information about the show and ways to support us at ChasingEnlightenment.net Contact us at ChasingEnlightenment at gmail.com For mental health support in Canada, visit wellnesstogether.ca or text 686868 for immediate help. Those seeking to leave abusive relationships can visit endingviolencecanada.org.